Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your Monday Old Time Radio episode with me, your tale teller. Thank you to all of you little lovelies that supported my decision to miss Friday's episode because my going away work party ended up going well into the night. That being said, it was an absolute blast. Now, in today's episode, I'm bringing you not one remastered episode, not two, but three of the Black Museum episodes with Orson Welles leading the narrative charge. In order, your tales are The Sash Cord, The Service Card, and The Sheath Knife. And mates, all of these ones are keepers, all unique with rich narrative tapestries that I know you're going to enjoy. You know, murder, betrayal, insanity, hatred, the spice of that darker and crueler criminal lifestyle. So turn off the lights, crank up the sound, and be careful. Anything could be a weapon for murder. Museum, a repository of crime, of death by violence. Here in the bleak stone structure which is Scotland Yard, there is a warehouse of souvenirs, where ordinary objects, a briar root pipe, a dingy white glove, a lump of twisted sealing wax, all have a history of murder. This length of sash cord quite commonplace. You might see something like this in any window frame. Harmless-looking bit of rope. It seems so. Frayed at one end, cut all cleanly at the other. Just the right length to hook around the man's neck and twist. Today, that bit of sash cord can be seen in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Outside these walls of blackened brick and slate is London, where since daybreak the river has borne an endless burden of traffic. On fog-shrouded bridges and in narrow streets, tens of thousands of pedestrians have jostled one another, all very much alive. But here, within this room, connoisseurs of crime may see recorded for posterity in cabinets, in wooden trays, in jars, carefully labeled and preserved, the evidence of vindictive death. This sash cord, short piece of rope, grimy, frayed at one end, not remarkable in itself, yet it came from the stage of a famous theater in the city of Brighton, where 
Octavia Kenmore, actress manager, was concluding her annual engagement. The alley of that theater was like any other, a corridor of darkness between the street and the stage door. And one September evening, a man came running out of the shadows, startling the doorkeeper who sat dozing in his chair. Mr. Carter, what's the trouble, sir? You'll find out soon enough. Operator, Sinjin Carter here, Mercury Theatre. Send an ambulance quickly. There's been an accident. One of our stagehands, he's lying unconscious in the alley. Hurry, please. Yes. One of the cast, Mr. Carter? Who is he? Tell me. It's Buckland. I can't bring him round. I tried. Yes, Buckland. Oh, Miss Kenmore will be terribly distressed. Stage carpenter with her for 20 years. I dare say she will. Hadn't we better go and lift him in? Perhaps there's something could be done. No, no. It's better not to move him till the doctor comes. It may be serious. We wouldn't want to injure him, you know. A man found dead or dying. A phone call. Then the waiting. Over the crumpled figure stood old Tom Snellen, doorkeeper, and St. John Carter, leading man. Waiting. Waiting until an ambulance drew up at an enter and came to kneel beside Jeff Buckland. Which one of you called us? I did. You said the man was unconscious. Well, it looked to be. I'm no physician. This man's dead. Shot through the heart. You'd have done much better to have called the police. <laughs> Police arrived and actors coming in for the evening performance were questioned. The star of the play in the theater earlier was her custom was left undisturbed. The constable at the door admitted a young plainclothes man. Inspector Mitchell? Yes, Jordan? Uh, one of the men found this, sir. Hidden under some rubbish in the alley. 32 caliber. Thank you. Oh, uh, Mr. Ellis. Attention now focused on David Ellis, stage manager in Miss Kenmore's troupe. Ever seen this pistol, Mr. Ellis? Why, yes, it's the one we use in the play. I keep it in my desk. Oh, the usual license for it. Uh, what sort of ammunition do you have? Oh, blank cartridges, of course. 32 blanks. It's not loaded with blanks now. Bullets. And one chamber has been fired. I must warn you, Ellis. Anything you say henceforth will be written down and may be used as evidence. What? You mean you're arresting Dave? But you can't. He never hurt anyone. Who are you, young lady? Miss Kenmore's secretary. My wife, Inspector. Oh, please, Lucy. But this is... Well, Inspector, you don't understand. Jeff was our friend. He's been... Well, like a father to both of us. And while you stand here wasting time, the real murderer is getting farther that away. That will do, Lucy. I take it there's been some trouble. Please, sir, state your business and then leave. I can't have my theater disrupted 15 minutes before curtain time. Oh, Miss Kenmore. Now, Lucy, control yourself. Will someone be good enough to tell me what has happened? Certainly, Miss Kenmore. I had hoped it wouldn't be necessary to disturb you just at present. But one of your stagehands, Mr. Buckland, was found this evening outside... Octavia Kenmore, distinguished actress manager, darling of the provinces, equally adept at comedy or tragedy. Of course, I'm gravely shocked. Poor Mr. Buckland, a good and faithful servant, Inspector. Oh, but it is preposterous of you to suspect Mr. Ellis. My stage managers never kill people. In any case, I can't spare him. We ring up in ten minutes exactly. I'm extremely sorry, Miss Kenmore, but Ellis is a material witness. He must come to the station house for further questioning. It was his pistol It was my pistol. I own all the props used in my the place. The license is in his name. Legally, he is the owner. Then I demand that you release him in my personal recognizance. I'd like to do that, ma'am, but unfortunately your entire company is under surveillance and is only permitted to perform tonight. Ellis, you must come with me. Very well. 
Go with them, David. <laughs> Lucy and I will be down to see you. And the inspector, as soon as we possibly can. Thank you, Miss Kenmore. The police left the theater, except for certain constables on duty at the door. And in her dressing room, Octavia Kenmore made ready. Lucy, my child. Ah, me. How weak a thing the heart of woman is. Come. Don't be downcast. Oh, how can I help it, Miss Kenmore? With David in prison. Nonsense. He's only detained for questioning. He isn't charged with any crime. I'm thinking of Geoffrey Buckland, an excellent good man, and the best stage carpenter there was in England. Was he married? His family's in Manchester. I'll have to telephone them immediately after the performance. What? You really mean you're going on? Certainly I am. And you will do David's job tonight. What? Me? Run the show? Why not? You've seen David do it often enough. And work is what you need. There's no time to think. Now, quickly now. Check the stage for the first scene and while I repair my makeup. Go, my child. The play went smoothly. The curtain rose and fell as the actors took their calls. Lucy Ellis, listening to the applause, realized suddenly she was quite calm and self-possessed. But her composure was nothing to that of Octavia Kenmore. She descended on the police station not many minutes later. Ah, Miss Kenmore and Mrs. Ellis. Come in, won't you? I am in, Inspector. Now, I expect a full explanation of what you have accomplished by imprisoning my employee these past two hours. Now, please sit down, ladies. There's plenty of time. Is there? I expect to leave Brighton tomorrow night, taking my stage manager with me. Is he all right, Inspector? He's not in chains or even in a dungeon, Mrs. Ellis. In fact... He's quite comfortable. Oh, thank heavens for that. If you will both be seated, madam. Since you insist. Thank you, Inspector. Well, have you nothing to tell us about this case? I'm waiting at the moment for our pathologist's report. Of course. Your top, is it not? Yes, routine police procedure. Well, the man's been shot. That was quite obvious. The bullet is important, particularly in court, to establish the actual weapon. It seemed to me the hand that fired the weapon is a more important consideration. Eventually, Miss Kenmore, and inevitably, I trust... We'd like to know more about uh, Buckland's background, his habits. Did he drink, for example? Despite the general opinion, there are many in the theatrical profession who are not addicted to alcohol, Inspector. Mr. Buckland was a decent man. Octavia Canmore told the truth about the murdered man, a non-drinker, except for an occasional pint of bitter after the show, a devoted family man in an occupation where family relationships are often difficult to maintain. There was nothing to indicate a motive for murder... In all the years with me, I have never known him to miss a single performance. He was a craftsman who could rig and handle any production, heavy or light. With him on the job, my stage managers had an easy time of it. Everyone liked him. His only fault, perhaps, was that he was too loyal to me. We're not being much help to you, are we, Inspector? Oh, yes. You've helped to fill in the picture. I've learned a lot. No? What have you learned? Two important things, Miss Kenmore. First, that Buckland was not a man who made enemies. All my reports bear this out. And also, that he was extremely devoted to you. Hmm. You think that's significant? Extremely. You keep a close rein in your company. You should know of any jealousies or quarrels that occurred. I'd know about them, yes. I'm sure of that. You're not the person to tolerate friction or even bad habits in members of your troop. Come in. Pathology report, Inspector. I knew you wanted right away. Thank you, yes. Well, 
This is interesting. Why wasn't I told of this before? You know what they like in the lab, Inspector. They wanted to be sure. Absolutely sure. I see. Miss Kenmore, can you think of a reason why anyone should want to shoot a dead man? <gasps> Hardly. A useless procedure. It seems so. Says happened. Apparently, Buckland was dead of strangulation before he was shot. Today, the instrument of that murder, a piece of sash cord, can be found in the Black Museum. It was a good question. Inspector Mitchell repeated it. Can you think of a reason why anyone should want to shoot a dead man? An interesting problem, is it not? The medical report is very definite. Buckland was strangled with a thin piece of rope. Because he wore a scarf about his neck, the marks weren't noticed till they brought him to the lab. He was dead before the bullet ever was fired. Inspector Mitchell then went back to the scene of the crime, the alley beside the theater where the body of Jeffrey Buckland had been found. And with him, at her own insistence, went Octavia Kenmore. What are they looking for, Miss Kenmore? The thin piece of rope, of course. They'll never find it. If the murderer had an ounce of brains, he'll have taken it with him. It's strange. I don't suppose this alley ever had so much light turned onto it before. It was strange. Men searching every cranny, their flashlights pointing and probing, picking out grillwork balconies, iron ladders and fire escapes thick with rust. The men themselves silhouetted against the light. Oh, Miss Kenmore? Yes? We found this, caught up in that balustrade. I think it's the weapon. Our lab can tell us definitely, of course. I see. A piece of lash line. What's that? Lash line, did you say? Yes, it's the sort of rope we use backstage to lash the scenery together. Much the same as ordinary clothesline? Or sash cord, yes. Would you be able to identify it as belonging to your stage equipment? Oh, that's hard to say. Miss Kenmore, Inspector. Yes, Lucy? One of the stagehands reported to me tonight. They'd had trouble with one of the sets. The line was too short to make it fast. Could you locate that piece of scenery, Mrs. Ellis? I think so. I told him to leave it on top of the stack so that we could replace it in the morning. Well, let's go on stage then, shall we? Do you know, Miss Kenmore, as a youth, I was strongly attracted to the theater? Were you indeed, Inspector Mitchell? They moved through the stage door onto the platform. This is the flat, the one with the short lash line. You see how it works, Inspector. The rope is flipped round the iron cleats and tied off at the bottom. So the audience sees only an unbroken wall. I understand perfectly. The core of this rope matches the piece found in the alley. Rust, stains and all. What does that suggest to you, Inspector? There's little doubt in my mind, Miss Kenmore, that the person we want is a member of your own company. Yes, I've decided that for myself some time A ago. member of your company, I think, cut off this cordage to strangle Buckland. And someone else, familiar with these premises, took the pistol from Ellis's desk. Then... You don't think my husband's guilty? I haven't said that. But I must check once more who actually was here, backstage, between the hours of six and seven. I was here myself in my dressing room. And Sneller, the doorkeeper, was on duty. He surely... He took his statement, of course. He uh, seemed a bit evasive now that I think of it. I won't hear a word against him. Sneller's perfectly honest. I take an oath on him. Is he? A remarkably sound sleeper all the same? What do you mean? The extraordinary thing about his story, he claims to have been dozing in his chair. He didn't wake even when a pistol was fired not 30 feet away. I think perhaps I'd better go and visit him. Then I'll come No, Miss Kenmore, not this trip. Investigations of this kind are sometimes dangerous. 
The old man lived close by the theater. Four flights of well-worn steps led to an attic door. What do you want? What is it? You're Mr. Snellen? I am. We're the police. My name is Mitchell, C.I.D. Should I show you my credentials? No, I, I recognize you, sir. Come inside. John Snellen had no need to be afraid, but it was his nature to be timid. Nearly an old man who wanted to avoid trouble. Sometimes when arguments occurred, it was his habit to pretend to be asleep in his cubbyhole behind the stage door. Did you expect me to believe that when a pistol was fired close by you, you didn't even hear it? I can't rightly say this. There's heavy traffic in the street that time of night, you know. If I did hear a noise, I must have took it for a passing car. Yes, I'll admit that's a likely explanation. Perhaps I ought to. Uh, yes, what is it? If there's something you haven't told us, I advise you to come out with it. What had he seen and heard? A trifle. But possibly a trifle of importance. Almost enough to send a man to the gallows. I know I should have spoke of it before, sir, but, well, it was a little before seven o'clock and Mr. Buckland was inside near his toolbox talking to this flashy dressed young fella. And Mr. Sinjin Carter, he was there too, just standing by, so to speak. Could you hear what they were saying? No bookmaking in this house. That was what Buckland said. Miss Kenmore won't stand for it. She's strict about such things. Oh, yes, sir. Everyone knows that. Miss Kenmore won't have gambling in her company. An actor would get himself discharged if she caught him betting the horses or some such thing. What else did Buckland say? Well, he warned the fellow he'd go straight to Miss Kenmore. He said how this man had been following the company all along the tour. And Carter and some of the others had been betting with him. But, but that was all. Three of them went out together, still talking. And that... Was the last you saw of him alive? Yes, sir, it was. And Mr. Carter, sir, it struck me at the time. He came back a little later. Went up to his dressing room, I guess, and then went right out again. But he seemed so cheerful and high-spirited. I thought the gentleman must have settled their differences all right. Carter didn't come back again till he found Buckland's body and called the ambulance. That's right, sir. It begins to make sense, Inspector. Begins to, yes. But why the stage manager's gun? And why shoot a dead man? Why? Why indeed? Why steal a gun to shoot a dead man? Hoping to find the answer to this question, the inspector went to Brighton Jail to call on David Ellis. Look here, Inspector, why are you holding me without a shred of evidence? Won't I be permitted to travel with the company when they leave tonight? It all depends. On what? Your replies to a few questions. Ask them by all means. How much gambling goes on in the company? Not a great deal. Some of the actors bet a few shillings now and then. Actually, their salaries are so small they can't afford to be reckless. Does uh, Miss Kenmore know about it? <laughs> Not a chance. If she did, we'd have replacements in a matter of minutes. It would follow, then, that an actor who wanted to keep his job would be careful that such information never reached Miss Kenmore. Well, I'd certainly say so. Is there anyone in the company who needed that job badly? What do you mean, badly enough to commit murder? Yes. I doubt it. Of course, you never know. In troops like this one, most of the supporting cast are either on the way up or down. A dismissal might mean the end of a career. Ellis, has anyone a reason for wanting you out of the way? No. Why? Whatever for? That gun was stolen from your desk, loaded with live ammunition, and after the murder, it was left where we'd be sure to find it and hold you responsible. Oh, I can't believe that anyone would do a thing like that. Uh, 
Unless... Unless? No, Inspector, there really isn't anyone. Indeed? Well, there is, though. No matter how clumsily he may have gone about it, I can't help feeling that our murderer has tried to pin his crime on you. For the moment, I'm going to let him think he's succeeded. How'd he do that? By keeping you locked safely up here in jail. A short time later, Inspector Mitchell was admitted to Miss Kenmore's suite at the Shorefront Hotel. Any progress to report, Inspector? Not much, I'm afraid. Have you been to see David? I have. I left him in the best of health. Well, why are you holding him? David didn't kill anyone. You know that as well as I do. I'm afraid I don't know it. I've met many murderers in my time, Mrs. Ellis. Most of them look quite as innocent as your husband. Besides, I have a hunch he could be somewhat more cooperative. In what way? Tell me, is there anything you know of that your husband might be concealing? Or some, well, mistaken idea of gallantry? Something perhaps concerning you? I, no, I hardly think so. I seem to remember a melodramatic little scene I accidentally walked in on. Hope that was nothing. Just because Sinjin Carter made some advances to me and David resented it. Oh. That may be more important than you think, Mrs. Ellis. In fact, it may be the piece of information I... Inspector Mitchell thought that he knew the killer at last. But it takes evidence to bring a man to court. Then Miss Kenmore made a helpful suggestion. You said you were a devotee of the theater, Inspector Mitchell. I am indeed, ma'am. Did you by any chance see me as Lady Teasel? I did. A most marvelous performance. Then you recall, of course, the third act. I have something about... A crucial moment in a famous play when, standing behind a screen, the lady overheard a villain's treachery exposed. Such dramatic devices might be used effectively off-stage as well as on. At the theater before the matinee, the acting out began. Oh, St. John, may I see you a minute? Of course, Lucy, my dear. Not given up hope for Dave, I trust? No, not at all. That's the proper spirit. Still, I understand we're leaving Brighton without him. Oh, please. I'd rather not discuss it. Uh, perhaps in his absence you won't mind so much my paying you little attentions. Like the old days, eh? St. John, Miss Kenmore's waiting. She wants to see you at once. Really? The great Miss Kenmore? Mm, that sounds ominous. It is. She's breathing fire and brimstone. Is she? And it so happens I come from a long line of fire eaters. Lead the way, my girl. Octavia Kenmore was seated at her makeup table. Behind her, the tiny dressing room was crowded with trunks and props and costumes. In an alcove, hardly noticed, there stood a screen. Here he is, Miss Kenmore. So I can see, yes. Hello, what's the long face about? Nothing to do with me, I'm sure. You've been placing bets on the races, Mr. Carter. Oh? Therefore, I'm compelled to dispense with your services. Here's your check and return fare to London. Your understudy will replace you at the matinee. See here, you, you can't do this. I have a contract. This check covers the terms of your contract. Miss Kenmore, whoever told you this was lying? A man in danger of his life seldom lies. If Ellis made this accusation... No, David. Your friend. Your flashily dressed friend who admits to bookmaking. And may shortly admit to murder. Oh, so Morgan has squealed, has he? If that's the word, yes. I gather he's ready to implicate you. You try, that kind always does. He did the killing, he can't drag me in. I'm afraid you're already implicated quite seriously, Mr. Carter, and by your own words and actions. Oh, well, Inspector Mitchell, isn't it? What sort of game is this? The glorious game of play-acting. Congratulations, Miss Kenmore. A very successful little playlet. You haven't got anything you can prove. Mm, no use bluffing. 
You took the pistol, didn't you? From Ellis's desk and shot Buckland with it. I didn't kill him. He was dead before. You are under arrest, Mr. Carter, and charged with willful murder. It wasn't me, I tell you. Morgan choked him with that bit of rope when, when Buckland threatened him with the police. Morgan had no license and a previous record, too. It would have been jailed for him. He did it, and after that... Yes, I... you thought quickly. You tried to take advantage of the situation to frame Ellis so that the field would be clear with his wife. No. No, Carter, you may not have killed anyone, but you are an accessory after the fact. And you did put a bullet through a man's heart. A delicate question for the jury to decide, but I predict you'll pay the penalty. Come along now. And come quietly. Today, that piece of sash cord, properly marked and ticketed, lies in a glass case in the Black Museum. Here's an auto service card issued by a garage to show that a certain motor car was oil and greased. When the speedometer reading was 15,001. According to the card, his car had done 5,001 miles in the first. By the following day, he'd added another 160 miles to the speedometer reading. And he told you, Inspector, he hadn't been on any long journeys. He'd forgotten the speedometer reading on the service card. They all overlooked something. And the harmless-looking service card which George Dalton overlooked was instrumental in convicting him of the brutal murder of his own mother and father. That's why it's earned its place here in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Well, here we are in the Black Museum. As beyond these stone walls, the life of London flows as ceaselessly as the muddy waters of Thames. Here, it's silent. Let us walk under the frieze of death masks. The masks of criminals of bygone days, suspended grimly under the ceiling. That glass funnel means nothing until we stop and read the card beside it. Once this funnel was used to pour acid over the body of a woman. Insignificant in itself, easily broken, but was strong enough to hang a murderer. Now here's a pair of spectacles. Over there's a powder puff. And here's, here's what we're after, the buff-colored service card. As I open the showcase and take it between my fingers, I ask you to come with me back to 1947. We're calling at the quiet suburban house of Mr. and Mrs. Dalton, live in South London. It's a respectable district populated by respectable middle-class people, but the Daltons are in trouble. The cause is their only son, George Frederick. They are discovering that George is not as other young men of his age. To his parents, he is, at the age of 23, a problem child. He's not a bad boy, Fred, you know that. But he just doesn't seem to settle down. Uh, I know his trouble. Oh, don't be too harsh on him. He won't work. That's what's wrong with the young devil. Oh, Fred. Well, how many jobs has he had since he came out of the army? I don't know. So many, you lose count. And even the army couldn't do anything with him. Absent without leave half a dozen times. 
He spent more time in detention than he did on the drill square. Here he is. Oh, dear, he's upset again. Uh, now I expect you'll turn the radio on. Oh, George, for heaven's sake, don't turn that radio on. I've got a headache. Oh, go to hell. What did you say to me? I told you to... Here, you get away from that set. George! Sure, you put your hands on me. Go to your room. But I'm sorry... Protect me. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry he didn't Go to your room. I didn't mean it, Dad. I'll sweep up this mess and we'll have some tea, shall we? All right, young man. For your mother's sake, I'll forget it. But I'm getting straight on the telephone to my old friend Jim Spencer. He's got a jeweler shop in Clapham, and he meets a lot of people. Maybe he can advise me about fixing you up with a job. Jim Spencer, the jeweler, was white-haired in his 60s. He lived over his shop, which was quietly prosperous, and he had just lost a young assistant who, having learned something of the trade, had transferred to a larger firm. So, George Dalton was taken on in his place, and for the first time, George seemed to be interested in his work. But perhaps that was not altogether surprising. Pass me my eyeglass, will you, my boy? Here are. Thank you. That's a very nice pendant you're working on, Mr. Spencer. Yes, it is, isn't it? Uh, how much is it worth? Mm, I'd give a hundred guineas for it and sell it at a hundred and twenty. Would the owner sell? Not this one. But I always keep a few hundred pounds in the safe there, just in case I get a chance to buy something like this. Mm, now, where did I put those tweezers? To Mrs. Dalton's delight, her son was still working in the shop at the end of six months. But young George was rather less interested in the work than in the end product. And above all, he was interested in that safe. He even had a duplicate of the key made. He had a duplicate of the door key, too. Perhaps he didn't quite know what he was going to do with his keys, but in a steamy cafe behind the bright lights of Piccadilly, he found a friend who had ideas. If you ask me, chum, I'd say you were sitting on a blinking gold mine. Yes, what do you mean? Yeah, come off it, George. We did 90 days' detention together in the army, didn't we? Yeah? I know you're not quiet, Dolph. I mean, all you got to do is to get the key of the door, the key of the safe, and... Well, I've got those. Well, we... You have. There they are. Well, for crying out loud, what are you stalling about? Well, I've never pulled off a real job, Charlie. It's, uh, it's a bit of a step to take, isn't it? It's up to you, Cook. I know what I'd do. I'd sleep in about two o'clock in the morning. Here, here, Charlie, would you come with me? All right. Do you want to make it a business proposition? I, uh, yes, I do. Look, if we broke in... Just quiet. Pay the bill, let's get out of here. Okay, okay. Here, where are we going? I'm taking her down to the Elephant Castle, meet Slash. We work as a team, he's the boss. It's the only safe way, Slash has got brains. He'll put you right... Come on, I'll introduce you. So, George Dalton started his professional career. Yeah, you know this gone well to you, Charlie. <laughs> I'll say, we did 90 days together, didn't we, George? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. And you want to join us, do you, George? I want uh, Charlie to come in on this job with me. Uh, that's the idea. Yeah, the idea's okay. And we need a jewellery expert in the gang. Forget this, pal. I'm the boss. And what I say goes... Do this job, you and Charlie, and take 50% of the profits. The rest goes into the organization. Understand? Do you agree to the terms? Uh, yes. Yes, I agree. Ah, then that's fixed. Shake on it. This clinches it. And remember, 
There's no funny business in this outfit. I suppose you know why the boys call me Slash? I think so. I carry a razor. Remember that, George? Not that I'd use it on you, but I thought I'd mention it in passing. <laughs> George is okay, I've told you. Of course he's okay, and I'll fix up a car for you tomorrow night. A car? Yes, it's all part of the service. You're busting into the Spencer shop tomorrow night? <laughs> so you've got all day tomorrow to fix the burglar alarms. And those burglar <laughs> alarms took quite a bit of fixing. But by closing time, George Dalton had traced and snipped the wires. Putting on his coat, he wished his employer a dutiful good night, and at eleven o'clock, Mr. Spencer turned out his light in the bedroom upstairs and climbed into bed. Three hours later, the stolen car turned quietly into the deserted street and stopped. Coast clear, George. You got the keys? You bet. Okay, then in we go. Right. Where's the safe? Over here. Oh, okay, get to work. The old man's upstairs, isn't he? Yes, heaven help the old fool if he wakes up and comes down. You got that safe open yet? No, no, the lock's a bit stiff. Here, Charles. Yeah? Shine the torch this way. Go on, what's that? Jumping, Jake's, what the place is you're doing? Oh, sorry, I knocked a tray over. The clock made me jump. Here, let's get out, quick. Open that safe, you stupid swab. It's jammed, Charlie. Yeah, come on, let me have a go. You sure this is the right key? Of course I'm sure. Here, look, Spencer will be awake now. We must get out. You idiotic clock, this isn't the right key. Yes, it is. And uh, the lock's open. Pull the door. Look out, look out, the old man's coming. Here he is. Who's there? Get him. Jeez! Get back! Grab what you can and run for it. Okay. I've got two trays of rings and some notes. Come on, get him out. The jeweller was found, lying in a pool of blood, ten minutes later. The neighbor who found him called the police immediately, but needless to say, there were no signs of the thieves, and they had left no clues. And Mrs. Dalton stated that her son had been at home in bed on the night of the robbery. To the best of her knowledge, she was telling the truth. But two days later, her son visited his unfortunate employer and handed in his notice. Spencer, I just couldn't go on drawing me wages while the shop's closed and you're here in hospital. You're a good boy, George. I only wish you knew enough about the business to carry it on for me, but I thought it wiser to put the stock away in the bank in case those rascals came back. I only wish I could get my hands on them, that dirty swine. Well, luckily they didn't get away with anything worthwhile. What do you mean? I, I thought, did you? Huh? What did you think, George? I thought they'd clean you out. <laughs> no, I'm too old a bird to leave valuables in the shop safe at night. I take them all upstairs to a real safe. I only leave the paste stuff down below. Didn't I ever tell you? No, you, you never told me. How much the old gentleman suspected, we don't know. If he did have any suspicions, he never had them. But Slasher was not so easy. Dalton, the expert in jewellery. Come here, George, I want to speak to you. Uh, what's the trouble, Slash? I'll tell you what's the trouble, you, you dirty double-crossing pedisher. Think you can unload junk on me, do you? You knew these rings were duff. I didn't know. After working in the shop for six months, you didn't know where the real stuff was? Don't give me that. Two trays of duff and a fiver in notes. You can't get away with it. Where's the rest? 
There isn't any more. Okay. I warned you. Here it comes. The slash of the razor across Dalton's left cheek unlocked the gates of an unquenchable hatred. With a flash of six inches of sharp steel, he became a killer, and he knew that the slasher must die. He would evolve the perfect murder with no clues, such as the service card which can be seen today among the exhibits in the Black Museum. to Dalton, the killer. With blood still streaming from his cheek, he smiles at the slasher. And for the first time in his life, that individual is surprised, taken off his guard. I suppose I asked for that. Get out of here. You're not pretty. I've got your brand on me now. I've got to be one of you. What do you mean? You're a man of action. I like that, even if it hurts. Give me another chance. I'll do better next time. Oh, I never knew they made them so yellow. Get out. You stink. I've got a day there with a smasher and you might scare her away. Now scram. Ah, here she comes. Henry, is that you? Right here, Toots. I never knew your name was Henry. Yet. Oh, hello, what's happened? Oh, he's had an accident. <laughs> Just going. Hello there. Are you hurt bad? No, it's just nothing much. He's no friend of mine, Brenda. Come on, let's go. Oh, okay. Good night, Henry. Good night, Brenda. I'm going to say some more of you. That's right, Dalton. You've made your choice. You're going to start with a girl. That will hurt him. Follow them. They go into a cafe. Have a meal. You wait in the shadows. They're coming out at last. Follow them again into a mean little street. Oh, yes, this must be where she lives. You're going to let me in, aren't you, Toots? No, I'm tight. What's the matter with you tonight? I don't know what you did to that fellow. Oh, for Pete's sake, you're not still beefing about him. I know what you did, and I'm no prude, but I don't like razors, and you know it. Good night. Now, now, look here, wait a minute. Okay, if that's the way you want it. See you tomorrow. He's gone. Suppose we knock on her door. Yes, knock on her door. See what happens. Cheeks still bleeding. Look, I told you to... <gasps> it's me. What do you want? Have you got something I can put on this cut? You followed us? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I I need help. Oh, if he comes back, he'll kill you. Here, come in quick. I don't know why I'm doing this. I must be crazy. Here, come into the kitchen. I'll, I'll bathe that cut. Well, uh, I'd, I'd better go. I'm, I'm a nuisance. Oh, you can't go now. Come over to the sink. Well, if the cops saw you in this mess, they'd take you for questioning. Here, hold your face over the water. I don't What's your name? George. George Dalton. Henry says you double-crossed him. I didn't. 
It would be so easy to squeeze that pretty throat of yours, Brenda. But you're too lovely. Much too lovely. Now, now, keep still while I put some plaster on. It's lucky the cut isn't deep. Huh? How'd you feel? Oh, 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 fine, thanks. I, uh, I suppose I'd better go now. I don't understand you, George. You know, you're different from the others. What others? I suppose you know what sort of girl I am. I don't care what sort of girl you are, but I, I, I sure like you. Well, you're, you're decent. Perhaps you should go. I'll do just whatever you say. Oh, your shirt and coat are all covered in blood. I can't turn you out like that. You'd better spend the night now. I'll get you some clean clothes in the morning. Brenda, I never felt like this about... about anyone before. I... I don't know what to say. Honey, I don't either. Well, I'll put the kettle on and we'll have a nice cup of tea. Much a part of London's life as Buckingham Palace and the Houses of Parliament. Brenda made tea. The next morning she went out and bought a new lover the clothes he needed. He put on the clothes she bought him and went home. He knew quite well what he was going to do, and that night he borrowed his father's car, and at nine o'clock he drove to the bomb site, where he knew the slasher would be waiting for Brenda. And in his pocket he had a short length of lead piping. As he approached his objective, he saw a movement in the shadows. It was the slasher. Well, if it isn't the jewel expert. Yeah, you come at the money? Hello, Slash. How you doing? Well, what's your idea? Not looking for trouble, are you? What do you think? Get back, you don't. Ah, that squares out of count. Now, I'll put you under the rug in the back of the car and I'll take you for a little ride. to a deserted bridge over a railway. Dalton lifted his victim onto the parapet. Then he paused. Uh, just before you go, I... I wonder how much you've got in your pocket. Anybody coming? Ah, uh, uh, good. Ah. Uh, oh, yes. Quite a few notes here. Thank you, Sash. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Quite gentle, Dalton eased the unconscious man over the edge. After that, it was easy. Brenda, like the old jeweler, may have had her suspicions, but she kept them to herself. Dalton had money, taking nearly a hundred pounds from the slasher's pocket before pushing into the path of the oncoming train. That hundred pounds lasted just two weeks. Two glorious weeks. The happy couple celebrated those weeks in the famous seaside resort of Brighton. Then on the morning of January the 1st, 1948, with funds running low, George Dalton took his father's car into the car duct service station to be oiled and greased. Now, why did he do that? Superintendent Brandruth of Scotland Yard has the answer. There is no doubt that Dalton had already decided to drive to his parents' home and ask for money. He had insufficient funds with which to pay his hotel bill, 
and it was essential for him to receive help from his father. His father was always particular about the regular servicing of his car, and the son doubtless had this carried out in order to produce it as a sop for his father's wrath. And the speedometer reading was 15,001, duly recorded on the service card. So George Dalton drove the 50-odd miles to his home on what was to be his fatal journey. He was hampered by fog on the way, and when he eventually turned into his own street, the fog was very thick. Stopped the car outside his parents' house, went inside, and got down to business. I'm sorry, Father, but I've got to have the money quick. Well, who the blazes do you think you're talking to? You take my car for a weekend, you keep it for a fortnight. Well, I've had it, sir. I it's... don't care if you've had it rebuilt. You'll never drive it again. Billy nearly got onto the police and reported it stolen by you. And now you have the infernal impudence to demand 50 pounds, just like that. If I don't have it, I'll go to prison. The hotel won't Then you'll wait. have to go to prison. You'd have gone there a long time ago. It might have brought you to your senses. You're my own son, but I'm disgusted with you. Go on, get out. You can't send me away, can't I? There's the door now. Now, go on, get out. Oh, no, you don't. Take your hands off me, you young rascal. Your mother, mother. Give me that money, will you? Matt, you're, you're, you're choking me. <laughs> George, what have you done? He's dead. apparently unimpressed by the enormity of his crime, left the murdered couple lying where they had fallen while he searched the house for money. He found just over 30 pounds of his parents' savings. He drove the car into the garage, put his victims in the back, and covered them once again with a traveling rug. Then, as he cleaned the house and locked up after himself, as darkness fell, he drove to the nearest bridge over a railway. the same method as before. And when it was over, the murderer drove back to his lover in Brighton. But when he arrived, she had grim news for him. George, tell me you didn't do it. What? What, what are you talking about? Your mum and dad. Ah, you're mad. You don't know what you're saying. Come into the other room, quickly. Brenda. What do you know about my mother and father? Now, tell me. So you did do it? No. I know you did it. But why? How could you? Brenda. And don't touch me. Mr. Dalton, is it? Yeah? What do you want? I'm sorry to have to tell you that your mother and father were found dead an hour ago. I didn't do it. What exactly do you mean by that? How, how, how dreadful. I, I don't believe it. You know how they died? Of course I don't. How could I? Well, that's what I was wondering. Could you give me an account of your movements today? Uh, yeah. I spent the day here with, with my fiance. You haven't used the car outside. Oh, we drove to Newhaven. That's eight and three quarter miles. Seventeen and a half there and back. You haven't been anywhere else? No. The car's been here all the time? Yes. According to the garage people, you had the car serviced this morning. Yeah. The speedometer reading then, according to the service card, was 15,001. You've put on over a hundred miles since then. I've just checked the clock in my wheel. The girl knows I've been with her all day. Oh, George, what's the good of you lying? The speedometer's in order. That can't lie. 
I'm afraid that in the circumstances, it's my duty to charge you with the murder of... Stop him! Let me go! So George Dalton was arrested and charged with the murder of his parents within an hour of their bodies being discovered on a railway line 50 miles away. In due course, he was convicted. And at 8 o'clock on a cold, misty morning, he mounted the steps of the scaffold. And he told you, Inspector, he hadn't been on a long journey. He'd forgotten the speedometer reading on the service card. They all overlooked something. And that is why the service card has earned its place here in the Black Museum. You may be wondering how George Dalton was traced so quickly. When his parents' bodies were discovered, the police immediately went to the Dalton residence, expecting to find the son. Both the son and the car were, of course, missing. It was the work of a few minutes to trace the make and number of the vehicle, and a general alert was put out all over the country. Police officers visited garages, and the telltale service guard localized the search to the Brighton area, where Dalton's name was recognized in the hotel. The girlfriend was questioned while George Dalton was already being tailed by a police car into the hotel forecourt. At this stage, of course, there was no evidence against him, but the police allowed him to get into the hotel before questioning him. So they proved the theory that by giving a criminal just enough rope, he'll surely hang himself, which is what Dalton did with the aid of the buff-colored service card, which is in its honored place here in the Black Museum. Now, until we meet next time in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This seems obvious. It's a hypodermic needle. It was once filled with poison. Here we are. Here's the sheath knife I was telling you about. Leather sheaths, Sheffield steel, bone handles. Pretty instrument in its way. But the story connected with it isn't quite so pretty. Begins one coldish night in November. As a suburban train drew into the dark station at Ilford, a short distance from London, two men rose to shrug on overcoats. In the same car, a man and woman rose, too. Evelyn and Fred Winters, shipping clerk and his wife, returning to the little house in Ilford. Here, yeah, boy, dear. There's a patient man, this Fred Winters. He always manages to find excuses for his wife's nagging, but then Evelyn's a bit younger than Fred and quite good-looking in a rather daring manner, you know. He was tall, vividly colored girl, excellent figure, which she displays to advantage. Of course, all this was lost on the two men who left the train at the opposite end of the car for Mr. and Mrs. Winters. They stood on the platform for a minute or two, stamping their feet. And the winters disappeared up the tree-lined street. After a moment or two, the two men followed. Apparently, they'd come to a decision. Whatever it was, it doesn't matter. It was never carried out. They heard...
I won her life in the driveway. Then Fred fell. Oh, he's all over blood. He's dead. He's dead. Oh, he was dead, all right. Quite thoroughly dead, as Inspector Bell put it. The man Scotland Yard placed in charge of the case. Nasty wounds. Eh, Doctor? Very nasty, Inspector. Six of them. Any one could have been fatal. All very deep through clothing and overcoat. Then we're looking for a man, Doctor. A man with a lot of strength and a knife. Now it begins. Yes? I'm Inspector Bell, Mrs. Winters. Uh, we met last night uh, near the station. Yes, I remember. Come in, won't you? I expect you want to ask some questions. He was a shipping clerk. How old was he? He said 48. I think he was closer to 52. Did he see service? Home guard. He was too old for the ground troops and he had no skills for any of the technical services. Did Mr. Winters have any enemies that you know of? Freddy? Enemies? Oh, of course not. He never hurt a fly. An excellent quality. Gentleness. Gentleness? Oh, no, Inspector. Fred was meek. Meek and mild, as the old saying goes. He loved me in his way. That was more of the same, lots more, but nothing to indicate a reason for willful murder. Finally, Inspector decided to call it a day. Well, I won't bother you any longer today. Oh, yes, uh, if you decide to go away or anything like that, let us know when and where, won't you, Mrs. Winters? A considerate man, Inspector Bell, and wise. He long experience. He never rushed a case or a situation. He knew well that there was any use in that. He returned to the local police station, and there he found a woman and a man waiting for him. The murder took place right in front of my house, sir. Did you see anything, ma'am? No, no, it was too dark. Our street is very badly lighted, but I heard running in my driveway. Then it sounded like scuffling out front. I went to the window. I heard a woman, well, half whisper, don't. Oh, don't. Then she was frightened? No, sir. How's that? It wasn't right, sir. It was like she was begging someone she knew not to do something. Then I heard running away again, going away. And after that, the screaming. You're certain the woman was not frightened? I'm positive, sir. If I felt she was. A tiny bit of testimony, very tiny. Would it stand up in court? How would it impress a jury? What would a good defense counsel do with it on cross-examination? Well, it was weak, but it was interesting, quite interesting. And there was a man waiting at the station house for Inspector Bell with a woman. I'm Sandy Winters, Inspector. Fred was my brother. I don't want to get anybody into trouble, sir, but there are a few facts my uh, my sister-in-law may forget to mention. Women are like that at times. Facts? Uh, such as, Mr. Winters? There's a man who disliked my brother intensely. A ship steward, James Davis. And the cause of this dislike? My brother threw him out of the house. For what reason? Fred thought that this Davis was, well, making passes that evening. Fred mentioned it to me once or twice. Your brother must have been fairly sure to take such action. Incidentally, what was this Davis doing in the house in the first place? We knew Evelyn's family as a boy. He was quite friendly with Fred and Evelyn at first. Went off on a holiday with them to Brighton, between sailings it was. Then he moved in. Fred had a spare room and could use the money. After a while, Fred didn't like Davis's attitude towards Evelyn, so he threw him out. Is there anything else, Mr. Winters? 
nothing I can think of, sir. This was just a point I thought you ought to Thank know. you, Mr. Winters. We'll probably be in touch with you. Uh, good night. Uh, well, uh, good night. Uh, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Uh, pick up order, Sergeant, for James Davis, ship steward. Check crew list of all lines carrying passengers or using steward. And don't let Mrs. Winters learn that we know about the status. Not yet, at any rate. Beg pardon. You, James Davis, steward aboard the Morania. I am. So what? I'm from Scotland Yard. My credentials. What do you want with me? I'd have a talk with you before your ship sails. Sailing date's three days off, we understand. That's right. What do you want to talk with me for? A friend of yours has been killed. Name of Fred Winters. What? Freddy? Dead? How? Where? The inspector will tell you all that. Shall we go now, Davis? I've seen your first officer already. He knows what's going on. James Davis, Inspector. How do you do, Mr. Davis? Well, not so good. What the news and all? Who killed Freddy, Inspector? We'd like to find out. Perhaps you can help us. Uh, sit down, won't you? Thanks. Uh, and, uh, yes, Sergeant, take care of Mr. Davis' overcoat. Um, hang it up in the outer office for him. Yes, sir. Thank you. It is a bit warm in here. And, um, Sergeant, uh, deliver this note to Dr. Arnold, will you? Yes, sir. Now then, Mr. Davis, uh, perhaps you'll... Tell yes, Mr. Davis, perhaps you will tell us where you were last night between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. I was with Evelyn Winter's family. I've known them since I was a boy. Well, that fits with Stanley Winter's story, doesn't it? What about Evelyn Winter's and Fred, Mr. Davis? You knew them well, didn't you? Matter of fact, Inspector, I had a room with them. Until poor old Freddy got the idea that Evelyn and I were a bit too friendly. It wasn't true, naturally, sir. But I figured it'd be better all round if I cleared up. So I did. Perfectly natural. Don't cause your childhood friend any trouble. If her husband is jealous, lives somewhere else. So simple, so proper. It was just about then that the telephone on the inspector's desk added its voice to the situation. Inspector Bell here. Arnold speaking. Bell, you've got good eyes. Sergeant Holloway is here with a fellow's overcoat. Give me your note. I made only the first test, but there's no doubt in my mind. That stain you spotted on the sleeve, it's blood, all right. No question about it. Well, today you can find that sheath knife, among other honored exhibits, in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. I said, Inspector, I spent the evening with Evelyn's family. I've been doing that during my time ashore for years. I left them about 11 o'clock. It was something of a problem getting back to London. The trains out Manor Parkway aren't very frequent after 11. When I finally made it back to Victoria Station, the last train out my way was gone. I didn't have the cab fare, so I walked all the way home. Didn't get in until after 2 in the morning. Quite straightforward, very logical, honestly, too. To Inspector Bell, it seemed, well, just a little too honest. 
He asked Jimmy Davis to wait around a bit, and then he consulted with Sergeant Holloway. A railway map, Sergeant. Here's the line that runs out to Manor Park. He was there, sir. Mrs. Winter's family confirmed that. And the time Davis says he left him. If there were anything to our idea, he'd never tell us about it if they couldn't confirm it. But he must have known it was a problem, as he said, to get back to London. Well, how does that fit, sir? He could have left a little earlier, but he didn't. Now, look here, on the map. Yes, look closely, Sergeant. What do you see? And inspector's pointing. Ilford! The next stop after Manor Park, going toward London. Oh, I see what you mean, Inspector. It might be quite simple. Board a train at Manor Park with a ticket for London, hop off the next stop, Ilford, knowing that Fred and Evelyn Winters would be on the midnight train down from London, wait in a dark driveway. Yes, it might be quite simple. The inspector thinks so, too. I think we'll ask Davis to stay here a day or two. His ship doesn't sail until the uh, day after tomorrow. Meanwhile, Sergeant, we'll get ourselves a warrant, and you can give his lodgings a thorough going over. Sergeant Holloway took three men with him and gave Jimmy Davis his furnished room and very thorough going over. Take everything apart, men. Put it all back together again so the fellow won't know we've been here. We're looking for any article of clothing with a trace of blood on it. And for a knife about six inches long. Also, what for evidence of Davis's associations with women? Three points. Blood, a knife, and women. And point one. Everything's clean. He must have missed the stain the inspector spotted on his overcoat. On point two. Nothing. Absolutely nothing to indicate the man ever touched a knife. And as for point three... It's a gold mine, Inspector. Davis had a special box full of letters. I didn't take the time to read them. One look at the signature on all of them was enough. Ever yours, Evelyn. <laughs> Interesting reading. Not nice, but uh, interesting. Darlingest, I can't explain it. I looked up Mr. Taylor's in a medical dictionary at the library. It's a cumulative poison. Put it in Freddy's tea, but it had no effect. He just complained. I've given it to him for a week now. I'm afraid to make the doses any larger. But I'll think of something else, because I cannot live without something. An electric bulb and broke it and powdered the glass. Freddy likes lots of sugar and I never use sugar. Maybe this will work. I think it's a stretch I'm not to think The glass wouldn't work either. Be patient, darling. He'll never give you a divorce. But I'll, I'll find a way. No one will ever suspect. There must be a way. We've got to be together... And we shall be as we were once, only without fear. Ever yours, Evelyn. Nice girl, wasn't she? Poison, powdered glass. Uh, ever yours, Evelyn. Inspector Bell called in Sergeant Holloway. Yes, sir. The letters. They'll go fine in court after we put the two of them together someplace and after we've found the weapon. Davis says he hasn't seen her in months, and she insists on the same thing. In one of the letters, she mentions meeting him at a tea room in the city. I'll cover that. You get down to Southampton to the Morania. Talk to the crew. Get everything you can on Davis. Check? Yes, sir. Check. 
In the tea room, Inspector Bell found an obliging waitress with an excellent memory. Tall, you say, sir? Open hair? Greenish eyes? Well, now, let me think a minute, sir. Yes, there was a woman comes in here. Very good looking. Hmm, if you like that kind of colouring. Many men do? <laughs> well, one man does. The one that comes in here with this woman. Afternoons, mostly, from early tea. He's young. Oh, younger than she is, that's my guess. Very nice looking. Have you heard any names? Once it was... Yes, once I, I heard her call him Jimmy, darling. I see. Uh, tell me, have they been in here recently? Uh, say, in the last day or so? Oh, I think so. I seem to remember... Yes, the day before yesterday and it was. do you think you'd know them again? Uh, in a crowd, perhaps? Yes, sir. I'm sure now. Why, sir? Are they in trouble with the police? I wouldn't wonder would nobody in trouble, not if I could help you. In trouble with the police? <laughs> a little, just a little. If you call a growing sum of evidence in a murder case trouble, and it was growing. Sergeant Holloway went to Southampton. I gather from some of the other men that Davis was never too sociable, right? Ever uh, show you any of his hobbies? Well, he didn't have any that I know of. Not, say, wood carving or anything like that? Oh, I never saw him use a knife on wood. Oh, he owned a knife. Oh, yes, sir. Slick-looking blade it was. Carried it in a sheath on his belt. He liked to keep it pretty sharp, too. I see. Well, thank you, Carter. Thank you very much. But there are two themes here. They must be resolved together. A woman who followed the pattern of a sly, careful poisoner. A man who once owned a sheath knife. The planning of a careful crime. The execution of a crime of violence. Did the two things come together on that midnight street in Milford? Was Jimmy Davis waiting behind the hedges? Did Evelyn Winters know he was there? No, that she was leading her husband to his death. There were answers to these questions somewhere. Inspector Bell went quietly and methodically about the business of getting those answers. I'm uh, glad uh, you could come in to see us, Mrs. Winters. I've been hoping to be able to help us. That's our inspector. I wish I could help you. My office is just along this hall. Uh, uh, yes, we're rather up a tree. A most difficult kind of case. Unless we can find someone with a motive somewhere, it may go unsolved. Oh, uh, there's Sergeant Holloway. Sergeant Holloway? Uh, yes, you remember him. He's uh, working with me. Uh, he may have a question or two. Uh, there he is, um, in this office with the glass panel door, uh, talking to someone. Um, come in a minute, Mrs. Winters. No. No, I won't. I know the man Sergeant Holloway is talking to. He knows me. Yes? Jimmy told you. I asked the question, Mrs. Winters. Are you in love with Jimmy Davis? Did you plan to kill your husband that night in Ilford? Oh. We know a lot, Mrs. Winters. We want to know. If you held your husband while Davis stabbed oh. him, did you decoy your husband? Oh. Did you tell Davis to be there? How long have you been in love with him? How long have you tried... Questions, questions. They came thick and fast. Now the inspector took her into his office. The stenographer waited. She was warned and the questions poured out around her. She sat there, pinioned by the inspector's quiet voice. Until... All right, I'll tell you. I was in love with Jimmy, but I didn't plan the murder. Jimmy did that. He did it on his own. He jumped out of the driveway and struggled with poor Freddy. Fred fell down. Jimmy ran away. I... I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Nothing. 
A nice girl, a really nice girl with willpower. They showed her the letters in her own handwriting, which she stuck to her story. I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. And Jimmy Davis, still in love with this woman. Jimmy denied the letters, too. Evelyn didn't know a thing. I waited for them. I wanted to make Fred give her a divorce. He tried to hit me, and we fought. I, I used the knife. It, it was self-defense, but I got scared. I, I threw the knife into the sewer grating and ran away. Evelyn didn't know a thing. We didn't see each other for months. Mm, what about the waitress who identified you, Jim Davis? What about your buddy and the story of the sharpening of the knife? What about the letters? What about the woman? Is she worth it? Evelyn didn't know a thing. She had nothing to do with it. Sorry, Davis. It's no use. You'll be tried together, and the chances are you'll hang together. Well, that's the story. That's how they wound up the case. And today, in case you're interested, you'll find that sheath knife in the Black Museum. Yowza, mates. Three remastered episodes of Razor Blades, Criminal Pastimes, Patricide, and Theft, all jam-packed in today's episode. I gotta say, the last episode of the three today was the hardest. I've been splicing out noise, reducing ear-splitting audio, and this one was really tough. The challenge here was getting rid of those ksh sounds, particularly from Orson Welles. No joke. Every time he spoke, his audio distorted. It was a nightmare. I only spent one hour on each of the first two, but the last tale was double that. Just insane. Now, my little lovelies, if you have a couple of minutes spare, visit my iTunes page. It's in the episode notes. Click on my iTunes logo and leave a review. Every single written review or five-star shakes those iTunes bots awake and sends them hunting for more amazing people like you. And of course, I'd love to have more people like you listening. Lastly, if you feel you can support the show with some dollary dues, swing on by my Patreon page and find out what I have on offer at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. From shoutouts to custom artwork to also getting to know each other. Either way, we all have a lot of fun. Now, my dedicated listeners, it's time for my Patreon stories and thank yous. For my own nighty titans... White Tea Warlords and Elgrain Forces, let's jump right on in. First up, my Ode Night Tea Titans. Maya. Megan, many ways. Megan is something special. Even when she was young, she wouldn't take no for an answer. No ice cream? I'll make my own. No toys? I'll find my own. No options? Not likely. Megan, many ways, took that courage and dedication to every aspect of her life providing open doors to a lifestyle she would find would be lucrative and interesting. Her speciality was licenses and access to hidden markets that would otherwise take years to earn trust and loyalty for her clients, then giving them access in a mere number of minutes. Megan brought in new members in with a tenacity that earned her the nickname of Megan Many Ways. No option wasn't an option, and she would always find a way. And also she had a knack on finding information on those that would identify themselves as thieves, backstabbers, or criminals in any way. 
And, well, as many ways as Megan has to bring you opportunities, she has many ways to bring would-be criminals to their knees. Megan doesn't give people access to criminal sources, she simply provides avenues of agreements and contracts that would otherwise simply not exist. And thanks to Megan, and her many ways to solve a problem, the city of Thunfield remains prosperous. Just be sure that the option you take is the one you want. Solstra, Tina the Quarter Car Thief Breaking into the thieving and stealing criminal network has significant challenges. Back in the day where cars didn't have strong locks and were of relative simple design, Tina saw an opportunity to make a fair amount of money as a door picker. With no tools and only a number of quarters, she tested the automobiles in her area with quarters she found on the street. Whilst she was digging around, she found the strong, sturdy quarter that was slightly tapered from being trampled and run over, yet still strong on the edges. Could this be her ticket? Her chance for freedom? Tina's step out of poverty? Turns out, yes, it was. The coins slipped in, and with a limited amount of twisting, the lock's barrel tilted and the car's door unlocked. From that day on, Tina unlocked so many cars and aided in so much automobile theft that new locks were invented to combat the crisis, just to stifle her lock-breaking appetite. But by the time these new locks were installed, Tina had moved on, and she would be crafting her own skeleton keys to yet again break into the market that no others could touch. Simply a lock, barrel, and twist away from fortune. And for my white tea warlords, I own cows, Trap Barrel Brian. Some people use guard dogs as their alarm, and some people pay for protection. Brian, though, well, he doesn't need a living thing to keep an eye on his merchandise, not when he invented the trap barrel. An entry door with curved barrels facing outwards, tucked behind the frame of a steel door with small holes. To the untrained eye, those holes would appear as rivets, or perhaps a pitted frame that lines the outer rim of the door, but they'd be wrong. And with a turn of the handle twice on the outside, the would-be robber is blasted from existence with six shotgun shells at once, all angled and piped towards the door. What on earth would possess someone like Brian to protect a stash with such a devastating trap? Two million dollars worth of gold ingots and countless collectible automobiles, one-of-a-kind works of art that only a numbered few would ever own. The underground world leaves Brian alone for this very fact, and word travelled far when the first attempted robber was left lying in pieces on the ground. Trap Barrel Brian, they call him, and only fools ever test his resolve. Lee Bauer, Sooty Bob Sooty Bob is a tricky fella, Nimble as a fly zooming through a mesh wire maze, Bob has the uncanny ability to simply slip out of problems. With his short stature, stocky build, and amazingly flexible body, no grapple, no stance seemed to be able to pin him down. Bob earned his nickname not due to his inability to be pinned down, but by one of the largest heists he ever pulled off on a gold necklace from a Lord's Manor house. During the heist, he was spotted, and as expected, he was unable to be caught, but although uncatchable, he was definitely not untrappable. Locked in a room without a real option to escape, but one, the chimney. So up Bob went, lickety split, up the chimney chute, 
and poof at the top. Not a scratch on him. Well, maybe a little on his ego. Bob then pounced down the manor like a black cat covered in dust and soot. At that point, the Lord's men not only couldn't catch him, but essentially refused to catch him, as the ability to do so would damage parts of the manor and their uniform to a significant degree, leaving Bob to go his merry way. And this, my friends, was how the nickname Sooty Bob was born. Thank you to all four of you legends that spearhead this show. Honestly, I'm not able to progress as quickly as I am without your donations. And for that, I am so damn grateful. I've just bought a MIDI controller keyboard thanks to you brilliant people. And that means I can even start messing around with my own music. It's gonna be fun. And only possible through your support. I've also bought some more RAM for the PC, which means I can handle bigger and burlier edits and cuts. So that will help the workflow and hopefully speed up editing. Thank you really, all four of you, for your support. It means the world to me. Now onto my wicked Earl Grain forces. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, Dolphin and Cow, and Michelangelo Yacone. Thank you lovelies for supercharging this show. Every single person that supports this podcast, and aka me, will see it fly right back into the show's production. Not sure if you noticed how crystal clear episodes are getting. That's thanks to your support, providing me with better tools. And these tools aren't cheap, and because of your support, I can either buy them outright or subsidize them immensely. Thank you so much. Now, mates, this Wednesday is my dad's birthday, so I'll be spending time with the family. That's not to say that I won't endeavor to release an episode. So I'll be taking my day off tomorrow to record one, because I genuinely love what I do, and I'm frankly tired of having you lovelies miss episodes over the past couple of weeks. So, I'll do my best, and will most likely release a heavily remastered, all-time ready episode that's a little bit different, that I've spent a couple of hours remastering to the best of my ability. Then Friday, I'm going to 100% be back on Dracula. Here's hoping that nothing comes up then. <laughs> and we can have a fantastic episode, me and you, on something old school and classic. It's been a hectic couple of weeks, so I really hope I get a chance to sink my teeth into this episode. Now mates, take it easy, stay awesome, which isn't hard for you lot, and as always, till next we meet.